It is a blessing that we're here today. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your dedication to come tonight to brave the, the wind and the weather to come and hear a portion of God's Word, to sing praises to Him, to pray to Him. I believe that we will be benefited by our presence here together. If nothing else, we'll have memories of where we were on that day back in 2023. Now, I guess this would be a good time to talk about the plagues in Egypt and the awesome power of God. Now, we often, often talk about the glory of God and how we see it in a beautiful sunset or a mighty waterfall. I believe we see the glory of God out today. We see how insignificant we are and how powerful He is and the majesty that He holds within His hand. I hope that we can understand the glory of our Heavenly Father. I want to talk about that for a time tonight is the glory revealed through Jesus Christ, specifically on one occasion in the life of Christ, that being on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now there are three men there that day along with Christ, and I believe it had a profound effect on their lives. Those men being James, John, and Peter. I believe if you ask them what does the glory of God mean to you? Or, who is Jesus of Nazareth? I believe this event would come to their mind. I believe it did if you look at their writings. So Peter, who was Jesus of Nazareth? He records this in 2 Peter chapter 1, his account, what he saw that day. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 16 says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came from, to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mount. Peter remembered that many years later, and it had a profound effect on him. The glory of God shone through Jesus Christ, His Son. James, brother of John, was this Jesus really who He said He was? This person that you followed? I believe He showed through His actions. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James believed with all his heart that this was Jesus, the Son of God. After seeing His glory, he would not denounce his faith. He would not even, under the threat and eventual death of his own life, taking of his own life, he would not deny Christ. Think for a moment what his brother thought about in, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. As he thought back, he being there on the Mount of Transfiguration, remembering the death of his brother some 40, 50, 60 years earlier. And he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. Pinning the words of his master, of Christ Jesus, there. John the Beloved, who is Jesus of Nazareth? I believe very eloquently he, he tells us who he is. And what he believed in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-5. through 5, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. John declares that I saw the resurrected Christ. I saw the glory of God in Christ on that mount. And it brought me joy. And my hope and prayer for everyone that hears my words, that sees the writings that I write, that your joy will be full as mine is. You know, he suffered much for the cause of Christ, but yet he maintained that positive attitude that David talked about today. I believe if we look at this event in the life of Christ, along with all the other things that we find in the Gospels about Christ, it'll be easy for us to have an, a positive attitude, to have a joyful life no matter what happens, even on the darkest day. Many people here this, this evening said, I've never seen this before. From the young to the old, I've never seen it go dark before the sun set. Well, we've seen it, but we can still have joy. We can still have a positive attitude. We can be thankful that we're in this building and we can worship our Heavenly Father out of the elements. So for a time, I'd like to look at this account that's recorded in three different Gospels. Both all Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give the account of the Transfiguration. For time's sake, I'm only going to read from the account in Luke. You know, just before Christ, this happens to Christ, Jesus has performed many miracles. He's not just been waiting for this to happen. He's not been idly sitting by, but He has been busy about His Father's business. Christ and Peter, shortly before this, they have both walked on the water. Christ has calmed the seas. Peter has proclaimed Christ to be the Son of God. And Jesus has rebuked Peter for telling Christ, You will not die. I won't let you die. In the day after the transfiguration, Jesus heals a young boy that was possessed with a demon. I encourage, I encourage you to read prior to and after the accounts, but also all three accounts in the Gospels. I believe it will be faith-building. I believe it will be beneficial to you. But for the sake of time, as I mentioned, we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 9. I'd like to read a little before beginning of verse 18. And it happened, as he was alone praying, speaking of Christ, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter, Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And he said to all of them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. These things happen, we see, just about a week prior to this transfiguration. Verse 28, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James. This is very similar to the prayer, his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he takes some and has them set, stay a while and, and pray while he goes on to pray himself. It says, And went up to the mountain to pray. And he prayed, and the, and the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of those things that they had seen. All three accounts, if we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three accounts record that the appearance of Jesus changes. Here Luke says it was altered. Matthew and Mark both say, he was transfigured, and that's how we get the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the same word that we get metamorphosis from. It means to be, to be changed, but it's a passive word. We don't do the changing ourselves. Someone else does that changing. Matthew records that upon God speaking to these three apostles, that they fall on their face... And the ESV says they are terrified. They don't know what's happened. They're terrified when they hear God speaking. You know, I guess as a child, maybe I didn't look into this story more. Or maybe I, I remember Matthew and Mark's accounts more. But there's, there's some things in Luke's account that, as I was studying for this... Um, they stuck out to me because I didn't really uh, remember that. Now we're told what Moses and Elijah were talking about. They were talking about Jesus' decease, His death that was about to happen in Jerusalem. Now this was something that Moses and Elijah looked for. That was something that their whole lives and ministries were about, to bring people to the death of Christ. The reconciliation of God's children to Him through the blood of a perfect sacrifice. Also notice that in verse 32 it says, But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. They fell, they fell asleep. It wasn't as I had pictured in my mind, they go to this mount and all of a sudden in front of their eyes, when they're fully awake, they see Christ transfigured. 
I believe they had fallen asleep. Christ may have been praying for some time. Maybe to the point that it was the middle of the night. We don't know. But they are tired and they fall asleep. And he is transfigured, I believe, even before they are awake. But he is transfigured when he talks with Moses and Elijah. And it says, then as it happened, as they were parting from him, then Peter says, so they're talking, they're transfigured. Peter and them are fully awake, it says in verse 32. And Peter says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make some tabernacles. And we'll talk about that a little later, what those tabernacles were. But also notice that it says, not knowing what he said. He said something. But he didn't know what he was saying. And also notice that the voice cries out and says, This is my beloved Son. The same thing that is said as Christ is baptized. If you remember back when John the Baptist baptized Christ, even though he didn't want to, Christ came to him and said, Suffer it to be so, so that all righteousness can be fulfilled. And he did. A dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, lights on Christ and God says, this is my beloved son. But there's something else that's said here. He says, hear him. And then at that point, Moses and Elijah are gone. They're enveloped with a cloud. And the only one that the apostles see next is Jesus Christ. So how does this apply to me? You know, that would be a very awe-inspiring. It would be something you wouldn't soon forget. It would be even more memorable than being in a church service with dusk clouding in the service and the wind blowing 70 mile an hour outside. This was something that didn't leave their memory. The first thing I would like to notice about this account, now we talked about Jesus not being sitting idly by waiting for this to happen, but that he was busy. He was busy about his father's business. Christ was a man of prayer. What did He do in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to His arrest, mock trial, beating, scourging, going to the cross? He was praying. What was the last thing He did on the cross, or one of the last things He did? He prayed to God. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What was He doing on this mount? He went up on this mount to pray to God. Prayer was an integral part of Christ's life. You know, David talked about attitude and how we must maintain a positive attitude, not only to be good uh, ambassadors for Christ, to bring others to Christ, but also to have a healthy relationship with our Heavenly Father and to continue to look for the eternal reward. We need to have a positive attitude. How are we going to do that unless we maintain a good relationship with our Heavenly Father? You know, Jesus was very busy. In 33 years, He completely fulfilled the will of His Father in His life. How many people can say that? Have I done everything that is within my power at 38 that God wants me to have accomplished at this time? No, haven't come close. But Christ was able to in 33 years. But yet, He still had time to pray. He made time to pray. There were nights, I would venture to guess, that he went without sleep because of the importance he put on prayer. How important is your prayer life? 
Is it important enough to you to lose a little sleep over? Is it important enough to you to forego or forsake something else? Maybe a little entertainment? Maybe a little recreation? To not do that? To choose to pray to God instead? To refocus your mind on Christ? No, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, simply says, Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know, I find in my life the time that I feel like I don't have time to pray is the time that I need prayer the most. When I feel like I've got too much going on that... The world is closing in, that I've got deadlines to meet, I've got uh, things that are going undone, that I'm not the husband or father that I need to be. That's when I need prayer the most, that I need to make time. And when I do make that time, when I get up at four in the morning or if I get up or stay up later specifically to pray, that everything else falls in place, that I have enough time. I believe the reason being, I have the proper perspective. And I put the focus and the priority on the things that need to have the priority. And the things that I don't need to have the priority on, maybe I don't do them that day. Or maybe I realize I need to completely cut them out of my life. Tonight, I hope you understand that you don't have time not to pray. Prayer should be essential in your life. It was, if it was essential to Christ, it needs to be essential to us. If anyone that ever lived on the face of the earth ever didn't need to pray, it would have been Christ. But He put a priority on it. My next point is that we need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to react. You know, in emotionally charged situations, this is the hardest. When we're half asleep or maybe all the way asleep and we're startled, as Peter and the other apostles were, What's on our mind? What's our first reaction? I hope it's the reaction that Christ had each time He was confronted by Satan. Can you imagine being confronted by Satan himself? And what responses that would have in you? What, I mean, hatred, what emotions would be going through you? Especially if you're Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, knowing that this is the reason that you're going to have to die on the cross. How did Christ respond each time? It is written. It is written. It is written. What's my response when I hit my thumb with a hammer? Or what's my response when something causes an emotional response in me? Is it a four-letter word? Is it to think how woe is me? Why did this happen to me? Or is it how would, God respond, how would Christ respond to this? Is it Scripture? Is it the temptations of Christ? Is it something that I have been thinking on so it has become part ingrained in me so that my first response is not sinful, but it is in line with God's Word? James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of God worketh not the righteousness, or for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. 
my first response, my emotional response, if I'm not focused on God, if I haven't been in His Word, is likely not going to be in line with God's will. That's why it's important that I have His heart, His Word written on my heart each and every day. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23 says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. I need God's direction, especially in tense situations. In situations where I know that I'm not in control. When I'm a farmer and my field is blowing three counties over, I need to be, I need to be focused on God. And my response doesn't need to be fret, anxiety, worry. But it needs to be that I have a home in heaven and everything else is going to work itself out. Psalm chapter 119, 105. David talked about this chapter. There's, there's 176 wonderful verses in it that talk about God, His Word, the value of His Word. This verse 105 says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Next point I'd like to make about this uh, encounter that these uh, apostles had with Christ on that mount is Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. Nothing else, no one else is worthy of our worship. You know, this scene on this mount calls to my mind the scenes from Revelation that John encountered Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9 says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And I, when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. You know, many people in religious circles will say it's good to pray to a certain saint, to Mary, to any other thing. No. Worship God. That's who has given His Son for us. That is who died on the cross for each one of us. Only Christ and God are worthy of our worship. Also in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we see a, another situation like this. But verse 10 says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, this makes me think about those that in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the first few chapters, they say, Well, I'm following Peter, or I'm following Apollos, or I'm following Paul. He says, did Paul die? Was he crucified? Who gave their life on the cross for you? Jesus Christ did. We need to make sure that we're going to God's Word and we're putting the focus and emphasis and our worship is directed toward Christ. Our faith doesn't need to be in a certain person. Our faith doesn't need to be in a certain ideal if it's not in line with God's Word. Our faith needs to be in Christ Jesus. People are going to fail. You know, one of the twelve apostles, one that saw many of the miraculous deeds firsthand of Christ Jesus, committed suicide. We need to focus on Christ, not anybody else. People will let us down. Christ never will.
No, it's important that we understand that if we put anything else in the place that Christ should hold in our life, we may not realize it, but we may be worshiping something else. We may be idolizing. We may, be, we may have an idol in our life. It may be money. It may be our kids' happiness. It may be sports. It may be stock shows. It may be school, work, many different things. If, if our focus is put on these, we're not worshiping God, but we're worshiping ourselves and our own desires. And we're trying to fulfill the lusts of our flesh rather than giving our life to God. Later on in Luke chapter 9, in this same chapter, Christ, as He was journeying, He says, people came to Him and said, Hey, wait, I want to serve you, but wait, i got to go bury my dad. I, or wait, i got to go do this. He says, No. Put God in the proper place. Everything else will take care of itself. Now as we read just prior to this event, Jesus had been asking His disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter answers the Christ of God. Now, I used to think that this was the main gist of the, this uh, encounter that's recorded. Don't worship Moses. Don't worship Elijah. Only worship Christ. And I believe that's true. We need to worship Christ and Christ alone. But I don't believe Peter was necessarily trying to worship them. If you look at the word tabernacle, what comes to my mind is the tabernacle as the children of Israel were in the desert. And they would set up this tabernacle, and that's where God would dwell, and they would go and worship Him there. This word tabernacle is also rendered tent. In the ESV, it's rendered tent. And it means a habitation or a tabernacle. I believe Peter was seeing, as we notice in Luke, he was seeing them leaving they were talking to Christ, and He wanted to hear more. He wanted them to stay. He says, let's make them tents. We'll make a place for them to stay. They can stay, and we can learn so much from them. But what was God's response? As Christ is glorified, magnified, He says, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Listen to Him. The prophets, which I believe are represented by Elijah, the old law that, rep that Moses represents, those led us to Christ. Those led the Jewish people to Christ. But they were about to be done away. They were about to be that handwriting of ordinances that was nailed to the cross in Col Colossians chapter 2. What God is saying, listen to Christ. This is what these prophets and the law of Moses is all pointing to. And that was something that was hard for those Jewish people to understand. And even today, it's hard for many uh, religious people to do, to let go of the old law while acknowledging the, the value of it and the need for it to bring, us to bring us to Christ. But we need to realize that we are sufficient in Christ. We don't need circumcision. We don't need to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We need Christ and Him crucified. We need to submit to Him, and we need His blood on our account. You know, the Apostle Paul addressed this very thing in Galatians chapter 1. He says, O 
or O foolish Galatians, he begins another chapter. But in, ver- in chapter 1, he says, Even if an in- angel from heaven comes and gives you any other gospel, if they add to or take away from the gospel I've already given you, let him be accursed. We need nothing more and nothing less than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I like the way the writer of Hebrew put, Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He said, God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the, power of his, by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. I believe Moses and Elijah were looking forward to. They were anxiously awaiting as they were talking to Christ about his death. And that's the same, that's the same way that we need to look at Christ's death. That needs to be the most important to us. Christ's death and the fact that He died for you and He died for me. The final thing I'd like to note is that God transformed Christ there on that mount. We too, as followers of Christ, bearing His name, we should be transformed by, the, by God. And that's not a transform, transformation that I can do on my own. Without the blood of Christ laid on my account, without God's Spirit in me, I will never be able to be transformed into the, into the image of God, and I will never be able to bring the glory to God that I need to. Our transformation begins when we allow God to operate on us. You know, this account, in Luke's account, we don't see Christ say anything. He's talking with, we don't have specific words that He says. In the other two accounts, we see Him consoling or uh, telling the apostles it's going to be okay after the transfiguration. But Christ doesn't do the miracle here. God does it on Him. We need to allow God to operate on us in our lives. And we do that by submitting to His will. And that begins through the plan of salvation. Colossians chapter 2, beginning verse 10 says, And you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Who does the work in baptism? When I was baptized, was I doing the work? No, God was doing the work on me. He was cutting the fat out. He was cutting the sin away. And He was making me, molding me into His image. 
that circumcision that was that even predated the law of Moses that led us to Christ. And that's the same that circumcision is a form is a form of baptism in where those that submitted to circumcision in the old law, those that submitted submit to circ- to baptism in the new law, they are submitting to God and saying, "I don't have the answers. Only through the blood of your son can I be found blameless." We will never shine as brightly as God intends us to unless we allow ourselves to be completely transformed by God. Jesus was a man. He endured every temptation, but He never sinned. There was no crevice in His life. There was no part of His heart that He hid and kept to Himself and said, God, make me in Your image except for this one thing. I give You my life except for this. He allowed God to permeate His entire being. Because of that, He perfectly glorified God. And we are going to perfectly glorify God to the extent that we allow God to permeate every part of our being. And when we find out that there's parts that need to be changed, we change them. We're not going to be as Christ and never sin. But when we understand that we have sin in our life, when we understand that there are things that are amiss, even if we had it right at one time, as forgetful humans, we forget what we should do and we go after that sin, we have to get rid of it, and be transformed and allow God to transform our lives into His image. It takes great effort on our part, but we are not the ones that are transforming ourselves. It is the power of God and His Word working through us. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, Peter, James, and John, they all had a sneak preview of the unveiled glory of Christ on that mountaintop. Even before His resurrection, they saw the glory of God. Their immature faith for a moment became sight as they beheld the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So we talked about Peter, James, and John, the profound effect that had on them. Well, Andrew Francis, what have you done in seeing the glory of Christ in His Word and in your life? Are you being transformed into His image? Or are you conforming yourself to the world? I pose that question to each one here. Are you allowing yourself to be transformed? To be made new each and every day? Do you see the the spots in your life, the places in your life that need changing? And are you willing to change them to the image of God? 1 John chapter 1, we read verses 1 through 5. Now let's look at verses 6 through 10 says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us of our sin. We have to be walking in the light. We have to be pursuing God. We have to be focused on heaven and eternity. 
But what does verse 8 say? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Remember, no matter how good we are, no matter how well we have been transformed into the image of God, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. We're going to do things that we knew not to do when we were first baptized. But what must we do? We must be humble. We must admit our faults to God if no one else. And we must pursue service to Him. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. If we ever say we've got it licked, I don't have to try anymore. I've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 50, 80 years. Then we've missed the point. We always need to be humble enough to look into our lives, to look into that perfect law of liberty and see where we need to change and be transformed into the image of God. Also, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. Again, this is just prior to his stating reminding those that he's writing to that he was there on that mount and that God said, this is my beloved son and that he was not just following somebody else, what somebody else said. He said, I was there. I saw it firsthand. First, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5, But as for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things... You will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tonight, are you adding to your faith virtue? Are you adding these things that the Apostle Peter said we need to? If you're adding these to your life, then you will be fruitful. If you're correcting the mistakes and pursuing God rather than your own selfish ambition, then you will be a glory to God on this earth. You know, the glory of Christ was veiled to the carnal eye by His lowly physical appearance. And we see that prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 53. But through the eye of faith, we can see the magnificent glory of God shining as an indescribable light as it shone there on that mount by His life, death, and resurrection on the cross of Calvary. I hope the glory of Jesus Christ can be seen in you and through your life tonight. I hope that you'll make it a priority to pattern yourself after Christ and His teachings. Tonight, I hope that you can better understand and appreciate the miraculous event in the life of Christ where God glorified His Son because of His perfect submission to Him and His will. And I hope that you will strive to do that in your life, to perfectly submit to God and bring others to Him and let His glory shine through you.
I believe this is all the thoughts that I have uh, tonight. If there's one here that wants to put on Christ in baptism, wants to start that transformation, wants to be made in the image of God, or one that desires the prayers of the church, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.